when people ask questions, I'm going to ask you to use the microphone because these, all these talks are being recorded. And they are, uh, they'll be on the website Dharma Seed. Something, I'll try to remember to put that on the ho- homework next week so you'll see it. Uh, so if you, if you think somebody would be interested in, in kind of following along with the class, they can, they can read the homework. will all be on that forum page, and then the talks are on Dharma Seed, and, and um, uh, you know, the books are on Amazon. It's like just nine different websites, and you'll put it all together, and you'll have the class if you function in that way. So, um, so I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit from this book. And, uh, and actually, one of the things I'd like to suggest if you did get the book is that you read the part on mindfulness uh, this week. Um, you know, in the beginning of the book, the, the front, like 40 or 50 pages, is kind of about, about mindfulness. Uh, but this is uh, from step one. And step one in the 12th step says, We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, drugs, sex, addiction, gambling, people, whatever your choice is, that our lives had become unmanageable. And then this section is called, What's this step about? The language of step one, especially the idea of being powerless, can distract us from what the step is really about, quitting. As much as the 12 steps in Buddhism are spiritual practices, they are both founded in action and behavior. And the starting point of that behavior in the steps and in recovery is to stop doing what we've been doing. So the simple function of this step to change our addictive behavior so that we can start the work of recovery. Maybe not so simple. I might have to do it second edition of this book. (laughs) I also find it useful to view step one as the beginning of a process, the archetypal spiritual journey. The journey starts in darkness, a bottom, that wakes us up to the unworkable nature of our lives as we've been living them. Just as Buddhism starts with insight into suffering, recovery starts when we honestly confront our own pain. This may be as simple as a persistent, persistent cough, triggering, triggering the thought, I'll never see my grandkids grow up if I don't quit smoking. Or as dramatic as waking up from a blackout in prison cell and not knowing why you're there. No one can tell you what your bottom is. I've been amazed over the years of my recovery to see how little it sometimes took to push someone over the line into a program. Or on the other hand, how resistant someone could be to recognizing their need for help even when everything in their life was falling apart. Yes, step one is about powerlessness and unmanageability, but both of those things are meant to motivate you to quit. So, um, Something else I did with this book is I added, it's kind of a pre-step one that's in here called For the Newcomer. So if you're new to recovery particularly, uh, you might want to look at that part. because I, I see the steps as something that's very alive for me, even uh, coming up on 29 years sober. Uh, so step one is still quite relevant to me, but it's not so much about quitting now. It's like I did quit, <laughs> and I've stayed quit, thankfully. Um, but really as a, 
as a reference point of, of remembering to, to ask that question of, do I have power in this situation and how am I disempowered and what, you know, sort of, you know, do I, you know, is there power that I am not engaging? Um, and particularly just that acceptance of the way things are that uh, sometimes I can't change. Uh, and, you know, the serenity prayer really brings this question up of kind of engaging in that question. Of, um, you know, what I, one of the things that I, I have an exercise in here about kind of asking ourselves, where are the things that I'm, that I'm trying to do or change that I really don't have power over? And then what are the things that I'm avoiding taking responsibility for that I actually do have power over? Because I think that's equally a problem, certainly for me it is. Um, the other piece that I wanted to sort of uh, put out there as we sort of start into this process is this question of, am I an addict? Am I an alcoholic? Do, do I have a problem? Um, because this is another one of those questions that people kind of, when they come to, to um, a meeting, you know, to a, like an AA or an NA or some kind of 12-step meeting, there's this kind of culture of saying, well, I have this, I am this, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. And, and people sometimes, especially if you weren't like really in bad shape, for one thing, you might be like, well, I don't know if I'm that. And then there's the kind of question, well, for, like very serious Buddhists, which I'm not one, but the serious ones will say, well, you know, in Buddhism, we're, we're not supposed to cling to identity. So if I say I'm an alcoholic, it's like clinging to an identity, and, I, and that seems limiting to me. And I, I can understand that view. And uh, essentially, my way of viewing the whole question is that it's not important. It's not important to me, particularly, if I'm diagnosably an alcoholic or an addict. The, what's important to me is that I realized that when I was drinking and using, I had problems, but I couldn't really deal with them. And my life didn't really progress. I kept getting caught in these various kind of loops and and issues and and uh, you know I was kind of at 35 I was kind of the same place I was when I was 25 except I knew how to meditate now you know it, was like, it wasn't just didn't do that much good so once I got sober and that's been true for these decades I still had problems I have quite a few problems I'll list them for you sometime. But I'm able to deal with them, and my life progresses. I kind of, you know, I take care of a problem, and then I move on, right? Rather than the same problem keeps happening over and over, or whatever, you know. So, the, uh, so that, to me, is really the question. Will drinking and using help me to solve my problems? You know? Uh, you know, was I able to really function well and deal with my life in, you know, not just externally like, did I have a job, but, you know, relationships, my inner life, my emotional life, 
all of that stuff. Uh, what you know, what, and so so that it doesn't become this, you know. Well, I'm not an alcoholic, so you know, I or I don't I don't want to be that. So I don't care what you call yourself. Although, you know, the one story I like to share is this: uh, someone who used to go to my home group in the, my first. Uh, when I, I got sober in, in Venice Beach in L.A. And there's this one woman who would tell this story about meeting a newcomer who said, I don't, I don't know if I'm really an alcoholic. And she said, oh, be one, it's fun. You know? <laughs> and I think that's a good attitude. Because it is, actually. It's fun to be a sober alcoholic or addict uh, you know, or overeater. You know? having, having this community of people in recovery, of people, of people who have survived, of people who are engaging, of trying to deal with life and, and, and understand the stuff you've been through. That's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful thing to share. Um, it's a lot more fun than going to a bar and, you know, talking about what assholes they are at that meeting you went to, you know. Uh, I don't know, I never did that, so uh, I don't think that's fun. Hmm. So, jeez, uh, there's so much I want to talk about, and and I, I, I kind of I was going to do a little uh, uh, exercise with let you guys talk to each other, but um, I'm just not sure I'm going to be able to let go and do that, uh, 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 let go of my own wish to to. I, I just think it's important that if I'm going to have this class and call it Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, that I'm going to uh, really make some clear reasoning for that for that uh, name. So, so le- let me talk some more, and we'll see if there's time for other things. Uh, I, one of the things that I like to point to is the idea that Buddhism and the Twelve Steps start in a similar place, as I, as I sort of alluded to in that piece from the book, that well, the Buddhist teachings aren't directly about addiction. It's quite remarkable. It's a remarkable similarity in terms of how the Buddha describes the challenge of, of living to... It's remarkably similar to the challenge of being an addict. So he starts by saying that there's this sort of unsatisfactory quality to life as we ordinarily live it. That even when we get what we want, that changes and we can't hold on to it. But that a lot of time we don't have what we want, so there's this sense of like, oh, I need something. Or else we have something we don't want. And we're trying to get rid of it. I mean, and this could be something, you know, material, or it could be something emotional, or in a again in a relationship. Or so there's this problem that things are never quite right, and also there are built-in difficulties in life, such as you know, sickness, old age, and death, as he says. <laughs> Birth is uh, painful, you know, and aging is painful. Growing up, I mean, I have a teenage daughter. I can see the pain for her of having parents, you know. (laughs) If she only knew, what it would be like if she didn't have parents, right? But but who hasn't fantasized about killing their parents? I mean, you know. 
my brother and I used to plan it, you know. We, yeah, okay, we'll come out from the outside the house, and we'll make it look like a break-in, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, so the Buddhist, there's this way in which, so there's, there's certain things that we're powerless over, like we're going to get old, we're going to die. Unless you're one of those people that believes in, you know, eternal life, like, you know, the, anyway, there's a pill or there's some, if you just, you know, uh, that uh, I consider it a delusion. <laughs> you know, if you don't, but just don't believe in death, right? You just have to, you know, anyway. Uh, so so the, uh, there are those things, but, but the thing that, the, uh, those inevitable problems, but the Buddha is really trying to engage in the things that we create, the way that we create our own pain. So again, as addicts, we know something about this, you know, because if that was, if there was any way that we created pain, it was through our own behavior, our own addiction. And ironically, you know, the Buddha says, we, we translate what he said as, you know, what causes our suffering is craving or desire. But the literal meaning of the word, which is tanha, is thirst. So the literal cause of suffering, according to the Buddha, is thirst. So it's almost like he's speaking to us, to the al- alcoholics, at least. I know, I know everybody here isn't an alcoholic, but, but uh, you know, as the, the sort of starting point of the 12-step world, uh, it's, it's at least ironic. But it, it also really points to how he's kind of, he uses thirst as a metaphor for craving. And so um, it really hits home. Um, but right there, the, these, there are, so there are four, no, four truths that are the core of the Buddha's teachings. But these first two are so tied into our, our issue and the, and the first step. You know, seeing that there's this problem and it's because we're clinging, right? Uh, and so this is the first way that we can see that there's really a connection here between these teachings. They're both talking about the same thing, uh, that we have to find a way to let go. And in the 12 steps, we could say that, you know, step one is about quitting, but we could also say that steps two through 12 are about staying quit, you know, and staying happy while quit, or quitted, or whatever that verb would be. And the Buddhist teachings, then, the Eightfold Path, are the same thing. How to, how to quit, how to quit clinging, how to, how to let go, and how to stay that way, and to stay, find a way to, to live in a, a happy life, a, a life of freedom. So the, the beginning of the Eightfold Path uh, is right view. And right view is seeing how this system works, how, this, how we create suffering through our actions, how we create suffering through clinging, through not seeing how it works. I mean, how many people, when they first engaged in their addictive behavior, understood that if I do this thing and I do it repeatedly, I'm going to become an addict? Well, I'd say very few, if any of us, think that way. Right? Because we didn't see clearly the truth, you know, 
which is, and that's in Buddhism, that's called delusion or ignorance. We, we didn't see that if we keep doing this behavior, that's going to become a problem and, it's, and, it, and we're going to be stuck. So right view is what we call in the 12-step world a moment of awakening, or a mo- I'm sorry, a moment of clarity. Right? This is like the cliche or the, you know, the standard way of describing that moment of realizing, whoa, this is what's happening. You know, we ha- as addicts, we build a belief system about what we're doing and with a sense that we're in control in some way, we're managing this thing, and it's not really that much of a problem. And in any way, there's really nothing, no other way to survive life because life sucks, you know, or whatever your belief system is, right? So we kind of create this, this belief system, and at a certain point, that bubble pops, and it's like, oh, well, that was just a crazy belief system. You know, it didn't work at all. I wasn't in control. I wasn't really happy. And there is another way. There's, you know, so that's the moment of clarity, and it's a moment of right view, the beginning of the Eightfold Path. So the, what they're both pointing to is that to begin this path, there has to be awareness. Now that's you know, one way of describing it. In the 12-step world, we usually talk about honesty, but it's the same thing. Mindfulness is just being honest about what's really happening. So this sense of honesty, awareness, clarity, seeing the truth, right view. That's how, that's how you start any kind of change in your life, when you see clearly what's, what's going on. Until we have that, we are in so-called denial. Right? I don't have a problem, or I've got it under control, or it's their fault. You know, I'm, I, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, All these ways of avoiding actually like, dealing with it. So uh, another way that these two paths are harmonious, and something, again, that I referred to in this reading, is that they are about action. They are about behavior. So, I mean, it's interesting that Buddhism in the West is viewed as, as being about meditation, and that meditation is somehow a passive activity. So one of the questions, I, I teach this class on Buddhism at St. Mary's College in January, in their January term, and one of the questions on my final is, explain how meditation is not a passive activity. And Because and, I want them to really think about the fact that even though you're sitting there and it looks like you're doing nothing, physically you're not doing anything, actually there's a lot going on. In the Eightfold Path, we would, we would talk about right effort. And in the recovery world, we just talk about suit up and show up. It's, again, it's about this engagement and then making wise decisions and wise choices. But because fundamentally, the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist path is built on the idea that there is a law of karma which says, Actions bring results. Whatever you do habitually, that will bring a certain type of result. So if you habitually drink or take drugs or act out in some other way, 
that will become a habit, and the habit will eventually become an addiction if it has that potential. If you habitually meditate and look at yourself, you know, look within yourself and you know, follow um, moral guidelines, then that will become who you are as well. And the results that come from doing that will come, right? If you do keep doing addictive behavior, just the bad stuff is just going to inevitably happen. If you keep doing the right thing, good stuff will eventually happen. So they're both founded in action. Uh, you know, uh, and, and again, the Buddhist path is not just meditation, but even the meditation itself is a form of action. Because the Buddha says, describes three forms of action. There's outward action, deeds, and then there's spoken action, and then there's thoughts. Thoughts, are, uh, thoughts create karma. Have you ever noticed that when you think, focus on one thing, how that creates stuff? It creates emotions and then it triggers actions and it sets up a whole belief system by which you then start to behave. So thoughts are actually the starting point of our karma. It's one of the reasons we need to really watch our minds and question what's going on in there. Because that's creating the karma that's going to then get acted out. This is not magical. It's not like, oh, I had a bad thought. It's going to like create something. No, it's that you know that's what you're focusing on. That's where you're going to be pointed, you know, and that's where you're you're going to be moving in that direction. So both of these systems are founded just not in magic, not in faith. You know, uh, even though there, it can seem like, oh, step three isn't that. I'm turning it all over to God. No, you know, we'll get there. Believe me, we're going to spend some time on that. But uh, that's, it's not about, uh, you know, just, you know, say a prayer and God will fix me, you know. And it's not about, oh, bow to the Buddha and I'll have good karma, you know, bring flowers to the temple, you know, it's, which is a nice thing to do. And it will probably feel good and that will create good karma in that way. But Buddha's not going to reach out and go, oh, good, you give me flowers, boom, win the lottery. And we'll find gold coins in your backyard, you know. <laughs> In fact, I heard somebody on the radio, the coin guy today, saying, eh, it was actually less, you're more likely to win the lottery than, win, than find gold coins in your backyard, $10 million worth. So these are, these, these two paths are very, very, uh, for me, they're really woven together. They make so much sense together. I, I, I think that, the, that Buddhism explains the 12 steps in a way for me that basically it's like oh that's how it that's what they're saying and it sort of explains the logic of them that's that's one of the things that I try to help people with but it's interesting that although many people view the 12 step programs as being fundamentally christian and even though the founders were christian there is some early literature which i, I read in here uh recently, and I'll have to bring it, I'll bring it by either next week or the week after, in which one of the founders of AA says, the Buddhist Eightfold Path could be a substitute for the 12 steps. And this is 1939. 
this is set, you know, and a very obscure pamphlet this is in, you know. It, it, believe me, it's not, it doesn't show up at a lot of meetings, but, uh, but, you know, what happened with the 12 steps is that it just, because they were injected into this Christian culture, that, and they used certain language that sounded Christian, it was assumed that that's what was meant. And then people who wanted it to be that, and, or, or that was their orientation, that's just the way they took it and ran with it in that way. And then, you know, we've had, we live in a time where, you know, where uh, spirituality is really... Um, uh, become much more diverse in our culture. And so people who kind of now are coming in from those kind of different viewpoints from the traditional uh, you know, Christian or Abrahamic traditions uh, are kind of suddenly hit this literature and this view that's being held by these a certain number of people. And they get, oh, well, I don't fit here. This isn't, uh, this is not for me. And, and so... I think it's important to understand that that's, that's actually something that comes later. It's not really uh, necessarily inherent to the, to the um, founders, and although, of course, everybody has opinions about these things. Um, I, think that's, um, I think that's good for me for right now. Um, and we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, so maybe just to open it up again, if there are some more thoughts or questions. Something must have come up in that. Yeah, hi. Well, the reason I'm here is because the, the, hmm. the, the reason I'm here is because there has always been um, this interconnectedness between the work that I did and, have, and, are, and I'm doing now with the 12 steps and with my meditation practice and with my study of Buddhism. And I, I absolutely, my experience has been that it was difficult for me to, um, to understand how Buddhism and the, and the 12 steps worked together when there seemed to be this, what you just referred to, this, this sort of Christian bias or Christian orientation mm-hmm. um, within the meetings, or at least Abrahamic orientation mm-hmm. within the meetings. Yeah. And um, then I had a sponsor point out to me that you can't read those people's minds. You don't know right. what their concept of a higher power really is, or what they mean when they use that word God. Um, You're really projecting your old childhood belief system um, and uh, having a conflict. I mean, that's your beef with them. That's not their beef with you. Mm -hmm. That's not the 12 steps um, problem. That's your orientation. So change that yeah, yeah and that and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm here tonight and 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 what's been said so far is really helpful and really consistent with the stuff that rambles around in my head yeah. trying to sort this out so yeah. I just wanted to yeah thank you open that. so and and so what you're uh, the saying reminds me also of one of my themes, which I mentioned again. A lot of the little themes are right in that little piece that I read. That 
what I've tried to get at, uh, you know, since I've started doing this work, is what's underlying both traditions that I call archetypal spiritual path. So that there's, so that they are both reflecting something that's not about. They they both come out of specific cultures and teachers and things, but but that they're drawing from something deeper that's very human. And, you know, it's kind of like the hero's journey that uh, Joseph uh, thank you, uh, Campbell talks about, um, and that there's a path. And so that's what I've kind of, uh, I'm trying to kind of uncover that somewhat in, in, my, in my work and my kind of reflection on these things. It's one of the things that I kind of talk about, uh, you'll see in this book as well, um, kind of with the different points of that of that path, because I think that's what's even more important than saying, oh, Buddhism and 12 steps and, you know, what are they saying? But what, why, so in other words, why are they saying those things? Why are they so similar, you know, what, because they're both getting, because what is true, if two things are true, then, you know, the sort of mathematical equation is, if they, if they, then they must equal each other. They must be, they must uh, be saying something somehow the same thing. So what is it that they're saying and where is that coming from? So that's, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, I have a kind of different experience. Um, I've been doing meditations for about 10 years and have only recently started going to AA meetings Mm -hmm. like six weeks ago. And Uh I'd I'd read some of your books. I actually once consulted with you too. Mm -hmm. But... um, it was immediately clear to me the similarities. Uh-huh. I mean, in a different kind of way. I mean, I think that those there are similarities about kind of on the more philosophical level, but mm-hmm. what I experienced was meta was all over the place. Oh, yeah, People beautiful. were yeah. so kind and so yeah. welcoming. And also the issue of the judging mind, which right. we struggle with so much in meditation. It's like that is also the kind of goal in meetings is to not be judgmental, yes. to be accepting. That's right. And I think That's those right. kind of basic principles yeah. of how to be with other people, I just immediately felt yeah. the similarity. And, and for me, it was, it was great because I felt like what I had, you know, kind of gotten in my practice was going to be a huge tool for me in recovery and that it finally linked up also mm. the idea of, you know, the precepts about, you know, not being clouded with, you know, substance yeah. and alcohol yeah. to then be able to have the tools from AA to help to bring into balance a part of my practice that really mm. was at kilter. So I think that I don't know if yeah. in this book you talk about those kind of feeling tone and interpersonal no, kind of play out yeah. that I see as very similar between the right. two traditions. I th- that's really beautiful. I, I really thank you for that. And I, I think when I said, oh, be one, it's fun, I, I'm, it's sort of <laughs> about that. And, uh-huh. but, but you're really clarifying that in a very lovely way, and I, I really appreciate it. And, and so thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about this work is that I keep, it keeps revealing more stuff and I keep learning more. And, and as you say, you know, my orientation does sometimes get kind of heady trying to like get this, like to 
all these things to match up. And, and I love the way you just went right into the heart of it, which I think is exactly right. And it, <laughs> of course, my mind immediately goes to this, like, oh, can I, I can explain that from like the antidotes to the five hindrances? But, <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> so I'll just acknowledge that that's my tendency. <laughs> And appreciate that there are others around to balance it, but I, you know what I what I think of and what what I do talk about is how in the Buddhist world sometimes we're meditating a lot and we're cultivating these qualities, but we can also sometimes we don't connect on the personal and on the social level in the way that, that meetings do allow for, where we can really be together and be supported and, and be honest and, and not be judged and all of that, um, that I think sometimes we need more of that in the Buddhist world. Uh, so um, that's, I guess that's the one way that I kind of refer to it, but I, but I really, I, I'm glad you said that because I, now I'm, I'm going to think about that. Thanks, it's great. And I, you know, and what I really appreciate about that too is it takes it out of the, uh, you know, oh, I don't know about the, I don't know if I want to do this, and what about they're saying God, and they're, or I'm not powerless, or uh, whatever. And it's like, oh, this feels good to be here, and that's because that's what it's about. That's that's why I go to meetings. I don't go to meetings to, for anything other than oh, I need to be with some people who are going to support me and be there and connect and yeah, sweet. Thanks. Maybe if there's one more before we go, yeah, back here. Well, I was kind of taken by what you said about be one, it's fun, because, well, first of all, I love, you know, going to AA and where else do you go where people are so real and honest, but... um, I also feel like there's kind of AA groupies who are there because it is kind of fun to be one. And I guess that's a, sort of a negative thing to say, but... <laughs> I don't know. I know. And like when I'm at AA, I feel right now the same way I feel at AA. It's like, we are supposed to be honest here, right? <laughs> but because um, sometimes I think... Like I'm... I'm not here because just because it's fun to be part of a group, but because right. I want to work on myself sure, and I want to feel better about life. And so I guess sometimes when I spill my guts at AA meetings, I feel kind of like maybe I'm not really supposed to say that made me angry. Maybe I'm just supposed to present the situation and then say, but easy does it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've, like, I've never bought into that one. That, uh, that, that always, you know, because yeah. it's a way yeah. of stopping thinking, in a way, some of those platitudes. Well, I always use meetings as a place to dump as much yeah, as I can. Yeah, and I know. do too. And, yeah. and lately, I think I've been having... Somebody the other day said, you never share twice. And I did that. And, I mean, they could have not let me really? share twice. Really? But, <laughs> you know, I don't want to go away from meetings police. feeling like... And they're not judgmental, so it is funny that I'm even bringing that up. But some people are judgmental. Yeah, I guess. But you know, this is. I don't know. Berkeley is pretty non-judgmental. <laughs> oh, you. But you know, you have Berkeley. your your. That's pe- where I live. Yes, I think it's like the worst in the world. I've been to meetings in a lot of places. Berkeley is the worst, as far as I'm. Yeah, concerned. so I'm still. And that's where I live. You know, that's where I go to meetings. Well, like, you know, it's really great to have. 
you know. And I love Berkeley. As long as you have the right ideas, you can have them in Berkeley. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, I won't. I won't hog the mic. But I'm just. I'm just really happy to be here because when I'm here, I don't feel angry. You know, I feel happy, and that this can be a really nice feeling. And I think. I'm just glad to be here, and I, yeah. I wanted to say that about the groupy thing, though, because I think it's, it's sort of a question of people's intent and yes. why some people are right, there. Right, right, yes. Intention is really important. So, well, there you go. Thank you uh, for coming. We'll, we'll do a, a little closing here, so don't, don't pack up and run away. But... Um, I just, I think the principle for me that has uh, served me the best, I think, in my recovery is the principle of showing up. And I'm going to encourage you both to show up in your meditation practice and your recovery program in the next seven days, but also to show up here again. Uh, you guys will, will create the class. It's very interesting to me that each group of people creates almost its own culture, and, and it, each time I teach, it's, it's different, and it's the same. You know, it's sort of something fundamental that's the same, but then there's just a, a whole different, different tone and color to it. So... Bring your questions, your concerns, bring your, your judgments and your resistance, uh, your wishes and your um, non-wishes, <laughs> if that makes sense. But, but come, show up, and see what happens. Especially meditate when you don't feel like meditating. In the same way that they say, go to a meeting when you don't feel like going to a meeting. This is, these are the moments when we actually learn when we sit through and, and things open, when we can sit through and, and uh, show up even when we don't feel like it. So I hope you will come back uh, for these next five weeks. And um, I will put the homework up sometime next week uh, on that forum page. Uh, as I said, you can contact me if you need to during the week, if you want to. Um, I'm actually not doing any major traveling over the next week, and uh, I'm trying to find excuses not to work on my next book. So if you email me, that'll be a good distraction. So um, let's just sit for a moment. In the 12 steps, step 12 says that we should carry the message of our spiritual awakening. And in the Buddhist world, we offer the merit or the benefit that we've gained through our practice to free beings from suffering. 
the spirit of both is that we don't, in the end, do this work just for ourselves. That we do it for others, for the world, for human consciousness. As we change ourselves, we change the world. So may our practice together tonight be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.